it, it's been a it's been a lifetime's worth experience, I would say, as a hospital doctor. Finally, it seems that some semblance of normal life is returning to the UK. Though, of course, there are still big concerns about variants. For the time being, it seems, vaccination is preventing any rises in people requiring critical care and dying from COVID-19. Life in hospitals is returning to normal and patients are returning to primary care which of course has its own problems. We recorded this second wave podcast before Dominic Cummings, former advisor to the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, appeared before a select committee and announced the handling of the pandemic. But you'll hear that many of the points that we bring up in this are not a million miles away from the things that he talked about. We're going to change our approach to covering the pandemic in the podcast. Uh, We hope to replicate this format of the second wave with frontline clinicians from other countries where things are going a bit worse at the moment. But before we do that in this last episode, uh, we're going to look backwards and forwards at the UK's response to COVID-19. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to join me in that discussion, I have our usual panel, Matt Morgan. Hi, my name's Matt. I'm an intensive care consultant based in Cardiff. Nisreen Alwan. Hi, I'm Nisreen, um, Associate Professor in Public Health at the University of Southampton. Parthakar. Hi, I'm Parthakar, consultant diabetes based in Portsmouth. And Helen Salisbury. Hello, I'm a GP in Oxford. We've talked about an awful lot in the last uh, year of COVID. And I wanted to start this podcast by kind of maybe trying to cast our minds back to the very beginning of this. We'd had some signals out of China that there was a worrying new respiratory virus that was confirmed. And then East Asia kind of responded very promptly, went into various kinds of of lockdown. Um, But over here, things took rather longer to to mobilise. Maybe, Nisreen, we could start with you. This was uh, public health at that point. That initial slowness to response, I know that that was something that you were worried about at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, We were very worried about um, the slowness and not only the slowness, the type of the response of the messages we were getting, which we now obviously know a bit more about, you know, in terms of the um, uh, proposals for herd immunity strategy. Um, and there was a lot of confusion at the time. And um, and, and we, um, I mean, I, for one, you know, with other colleagues, we're just watching things in disbelief, really, um, in terms of uh, the messages and how it was different to the approach taken by other countries. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I, I think the main really theme and, and it's really very difficult to still experience the same feeling now is, is being late to take these public health interventions, these public health interventions that we now know, and we knew back then, um, that the ha- had to be taken very, very quickly. There had to be very quick decisions about taking them. And, and the thing that puzzles me the most is that if you're going to do them anyway, which what's really been happening um, in the UK, but uh, in, it, it, why be late about it? You talk about lockdown um, specifically here. I talk about really all sorts of public health interventions, lockdowns, you know, masks, border controls, um, you know, all of all of the things um, that we know work um, to reduce transmission. Um, it's late and, and, and it's always like almost everybody knows that these things should happen before they actually happen. And that shouldn't be the case. You know, should, there should be some leadership to tell you, you know, to take these decisions quickly. Um, that's been a, a theme um, throughout the pandemic. And, and with the if we link it to the present tense where we have this rise of the new B1617 variant um, that's happening now, 
um, it's a similar it's a similar theme. Um, you know, it's a new variant. We knew that border controls were really important to implement to try and reduce a spread in in, in the UK, and that was delayed. Um, and 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 also now, you know, with it spreading, what's what's going to happen? So there are some measures now taken in Bolton, for example, but actually it's almost everywhere else now. Um, so there you go. Mm. <laughs> and I think one needs to say it's not just that things are taken. <clears throat> too late it's that there must be other pressures operating to stop those decisions being taken things that are clearly the right decision i mean right now it's kind of nobody wants to or other one has the feeling that that people at the center really don't want to disrupt the the dates that they've set and the timetable really want to reassure everyone it's all going according to plan hence they issued some um guidance to the populations of the highly affected areas that they shouldn't leave the, their area and they shouldn't mix indoors and all of this but actually they didn't tell anybody about that guidance because they didn't want it to get into the papers i mean which is you know really really a fundamentally flawed way of doing public health um and if we go back it was very clear right at the beginning i'm sure you'll remember that when we looked in january and february at what was happening on the other side of the world the kind of case fatality rate of one in a hundred was there from really early on. That was kind of what we what was what we were thinking was going to happen. Um, but yet, despite the fact they're trying to deny it now, herd immunity through catching the virus and developing natural immunity was the policy for quite a long time. And you didn't have to be a sophisticated modeler to realize that was an awful lot of dead people if you've got a case fatality rate of, of, of one in hundred. Um, so it's not just that people were late, but they keep they keep doing it and they keep not being honest about those mistakes. I know I'm, and, I'm and, angry. And can I can I can I bring in a really important lesson that I think it would be such a big shame if we don't learn. And that doesn't just apply to the UK, because obviously you've got listeners everywhere and it applies to many other countries. And it's the importance of having an ind independent public health. Uh, pub public health that is you know workforce um and that would you know and i'm not i'm not talking about the actual science i'm not talking about you know scientific you know multidisciplinary committees you know things like sage i'm talking about the actual public health workforce um to actually be it should be in a position where it's an independent um it informs policy it informs the public um and influences both, uh, rather than be influenced, you know, in the, the other way around. Um, and I think that learning just has to happen from the pandemic and not just in the UK, I think many other countries. How do you disentangle what public health is saying from what the, you know, policymakers and the government um, is saying? Because, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of coalesce together in, in, in many in many ways and I think there should be more distinction. Um, and that's, that means an independent public health. Mm. Back when this was, um, you know, starting uh, over in China, we were told that um, the UK was well prepared uh, for a pandemic. Um, and then it turns out things like um, our stocks of PPE had never been kept up to date and things like that. Now, uh, Matt and Partha, as people working in hospitals, um, I just wonder what... A, what your recollections of the beginning of this? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, no plan sustains contact with the enemy and doesn't change. So even if it, even if there was preparedness, you know, there's so many different threats you could have and the PP would be radically different for, you know, Ebola versus aerosolization and, and, and so on. So, you know, I think even if there was preparedness, it would be better, uh, but it, it, it could never be great and perfect. I think, yeah, there was a lot of focus on, on PP, rightfully so, towards the beginning. And there's been various statements saying there's never been a shortage, for example, in the UK. And although the facts of that, you know, it may be true that there wasn't a shortage, although that's debatable, but it's not actually a shortage which was an issue at the beginning. It was rapidly changing advice and rapidly changing types of supply you know you have to be fit tested on every different kind of mask and when you're having five ten different kinds of masks rotated day by day in different staffing groups even if there's no absolute lack of supply 
that rotation in itself is a disaster, actually. And one huge change throughout the pandemic for us in intensive care was moving to a hood-based system, which didn't need fit testing per se, and it improved communication, etc., a huge amount. And I think in general, you know, just like the Olympics is the almost ultimate test of sport, it focuses and shows the worst bits and the best bits. Uh, and there were some amazing bits of team working and public support and et cetera, et cetera. But there were also some terrible bits. And I think that's what this pandemic has done. It's shown sh- such sharp focus on the problems which existed before, which have got worse and exposed, almost peeled the roof off a blister, uh, which had been developing for, for a long time. Mm. I think uh, from a general medical point of view, one of the issues, I think the beginning was more about this is not happening, likely. And then you sort of start to realize that, okay, it is actually happening. And then you go into the next phase of, well, how bad can it be? And then you go into the phase of, well, actually, it can be quite bad. So I think that there was a lot of that. And then when you had, you know, I'll give you my personal example in our trust and uh, we had our respiratory physician saying, well, we need a team to run the block. And I went like, sorry, what does that actually mean? And they went like, right, we would like a team to run this particular zone of the hospital. And this zone is between the diabetes team, the rheumatology, dermatology, orthopedics, and general surgery. And I said, I still have no idea what you're talking about. And they said, no, no, there's no cases. There's There's only one type of case. You have to handle them as they come along. And I think that was the time when it suddenly sunk that, uh, okay, this is nowhere near normal. And and as uh, one of the fascinating things was how people reacted to it. I think the first reaction after shock was how many people pulled together. I think that was amazing to see. You know, you saw dermatologists who hadn't touched anything near general medicine. Consultants, very happy to be house officers, F1s, just Clark. And they were very clear, look, I can't remember anything. You want me to give you a hand? I can do that. And ophthalmology. So it was, it was. There was a lot of hands on deck uh, from that point of view. Then it eased off, and then there was the whole, Phew, not again. You know, surely this is done. And uh, so I think that when the next time happened, there was a lot of anger. I think about it because it was seen as. I think the first one, people were more forgiving if that makes sense in a general perspective yeah first wave i think it was more of a forgiving that okay well you can't predict it's a pandemic right some people had said that should have done it better i think there was a lot of anger and angst come december january especially january there was a lot of really annoyed people about what had happened so i think you can see a progression so as Matt mentioned, brilliant coordination. I mean, it just shows what the NHS can do, but not something we should be doing, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been a it's been a lifetime's worth experience, I would say, as a hospital doctor. Mm. Helen, and I perhaps you're a little bit too forgiving, Partha. I mean, there have been pandemic preparedness exercises. There was specifically, there was one in 2016 called the Cygnus Project, exercise, whatever, um, which was to look at how would we be if there was a pandemic? Because kind of people know that these things are going to happen. And it the, the what the project revealed is we just didn't have the things that we need. We didn't have stockpiles of the things we need. There were loads of things that were actually missing that we knew we would need if there was a pandemic. Yeah. And no action was taken as a result of that. So, I mean, I, I know, yes, you can't be prepared for everything, but you can be prepared <clears throat> for something that is foreseeable and foreseen. And pandemics were foreseeable and foreseen. And for reasons of presumably finance, I don't know, they just didn't respond, which was criminally negligent i think and i think that some of our colleagues have died because there was no response to that that exercise i'm sorry i'm, yeah. I'm cross about that so I, th- I think there are two aspects to it i mean one is uh you're absolutely right i think the issue is that when you come back into your bubbles let's say i'm a diabetologist and you go like it's not going to be me it's just not going to be me that level of disaster cannot possibly happen in a first world country and th- i think there was a lot of that so 
the preparation behind the scenes, whatever it may be. So I think there, there has been a massive amount of people, clinicians, and I think there's a lesson there about it can't possibly be me, that story. So ITU colleagues probably were far more prepared, you know, because in that sense. But I think a dermatologist doing their clinic for the last 20 years would not be thinking of going, going to the extent. And I think there is that belief in the system you have, isn't it? Surely things will fall in place and protect us from getting there, which hasn't worked. And I think going back to the point you made about the preparation, you know, as time has come out, which always makes me smile a little bit when I see uh, our previous health secretary now, obviously raising issues, which he was in charge of. Uh, and he, you know, was uh, also looking at. So there is a s- serious degree of irony about the whole picture. It's also the as fact we go that along what's important is really urgent, what's uh, urgent is really important. And when the NHS is struggling just to deliver a good standard, a normal, a basic standard of care to many people, uh, things like pandemic, pandemic preparedness wrongfully uh, and sadly is probably the least of those people's concerns. It's the most important thing, but it's the least urgent thing at that time. Uh, and, you know, how can you prevent that? Do you divorce the two? Do you, you know, have separate responsibilities from, from health and from that? Is it more a security thing that should be looked at? You know, I don't know the answer. I think, you know, Helen's absolutely right. The The lessons were there to be learned. I guess one lesson that probably wasn't, even in those exercises, was the important thing is often the people and not the bits of plastic. You know, there was such a thrust at the beginning of this pandemic, inventing ventilators, you know, procuring lots of plastic goods. And of course, that is important. The PP bit of plastic is especially important. But ultimately, the thing that was important was was people uh, and concentrating on the things that protect those people, allow them to work and support them rather than the other bits of equipment um, is is probably where the focus was lost early on. Mm. Mm. Actually, the people did amazingly, didn't they? I mean, the people, as Partha was saying, pulled together, were adaptable, moved mountains overnight to create new facilities. I mean, the people were amazing, but were let down by... I guess an ideology that says now we just don't want to spend that much on time. And and I think for I think it was very painful just linking to that point about kind of the system being prepared. For me, it was painful, even in the first wave, that narrative, um, the heroism narrative to me, to be completely frank, was painful because it was um, it was uh, really laying, you know, the responsibility on healthcare professionals. You know, when people started dying, you know, these doctors and nurses start dying and, and this narrative of them being heroes and sacrificing their lives. No, I was like, no, you can't do that. You know, people didn't go into this professional to, to profession to die. Uh, or be permanently disabled, I suppose, with all the biggest big numbers of people with long COVID now. Um, and it shouldn't be about, the, there shouldn't be any expectations of heroism. And the, there's, there, there, there's, there's an expectation of heroism when the system fails, you know, and that's what, that's what's happened. And that narrative was normalized, you know, that, you know, the clapping and everything else, you know, became the normal that, you know, right, we expect more of you, you need to be heroes. And that was extremely painful. And I think that, you know, you know, I'm, I'm hoping this would be another lesson um, to learn as well. And, 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 and so the individualist kind of focus and the same with the public health intervention, you know, it's your responsibility, you need to be careful, you need to watch out and be cautious. And, you know, that sort of shift from system responsibility to individual responsibility in a pandemic where we know, you know, ABC, that it's, you know, everybody's effort. It's not an individual effort. You can't 100% protect yourself or protect the people around you. Um, I, I have to say, you know, the, the, the language and kind of the communication about this has been, this is something that you can write, you know, books and books about. Um, and I really hope we learn from as well. Partha. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's one of my biggest bugbear, this whole healthcare professional hero thing. Uh, I have, you know, and people say it's like you build such a false narrative around it. It is ridiculous. I've kept on saying, of course, we do the job we do because we want to do it. But it is a well-paid, trained job. Now, you can argue about the well-paid debate about it compared to the rest of the population. But it's a trained job that we do just like any other part of the population, like 
You cannot have the narrative, these are all our heroes. And you're seeing the same thing happening, ironically, right now in India with my colleagues. It is like it is watching everything in slow motion again. And it is unreal. And I think we have over the years, and right now, obviously, a big issue is about the GP crisis, etc. It's again that narrative. It's that they're heroes and they will look after you and they'll be fine. Well, you know, unless you're in a Marvel superhero book, all heroes have their limits and even they have it. So, and I, I always have, whenever I asked about this, I always use a line, which is heroes always fall. That's the whole point of hero narrative. And I think we just somehow seem to have forgot. It's the same thing with our nursing colleague. They also, majority of people hate being called angels without wings. No, respect them for what they do, you know, pay them for what they do, all of that, not this narrative of heroes and angels it does not work in the health system that's something that we've been hearing in other podcasts a lot about the the toll the pandemic is taking on staff um burnout moral injury which um i'm hearing more and more uh i mean how are things things now um stuff started to ease off are, are people feeling better about the NHS or do you think that that anger still remains? Uh, Matt? I don't know whether it's anger um, more so than just sometimes quite reflection, sometimes radical changes of route and career and place of work. You know, the, the laughable pay rise for nursing colleagues announced, you know, is, I don't even want to talk about it. You know, it, it's, it's completely, um, well, completely unbelievable, uh, to be frank, uh, and that extends into into other professions. You know, not not just nursing, all the healthcare professions. I think we'll probably see the results of this really. You know, over the next five, ten years. You know, it won't be this year. Uh, we're now talking about a reset back to normal, massive amounts of investment to get waiting lists down. But of course, that investment is there for people, <laughs> and it's the same people who are going to be asked to do that as have been through the last two years. You know, at the same time, I personally do consider myself in many ways financially secure and lucky. You know, through the pandemic, lots of people have lost employment, lots of people unable to pay their mortgage. And that's one stress that we didn't have through that. Of course, there was other ultimate stresses, as we've heard of, colleagues sadly dying and getting COVID and where PP perhaps wasn't as good as it should. So I really think the ripples of this will be, you know, a generational change. Uh, and what's going to happen? There will be more staff vacancies, probably. Uh, there will be more people who are on sick, probably, uh, for good reasons. Long COVID will be, is and will be a big issue, uh, I'm sure, right, you know, rightfully so. Uh, and that's going to be hard. It's going to be really tough. And pick up the pressure on uh, on hospital staff even more there. Helen, how is it in how's primary care? I think primary care is probably now at its lowest point that it's been ever since I became a GP, which is now a long, long time ago. Um, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, our patients all possibly quite wisely stayed away. They were all too too scared they didn't want to come anywhere near healthcare um and now they do and they've got a year's worth of um complaints of all sorts to bring to us um and in the meantime the ways of contacting us have um increased massively there's lots of online consultations there's emails and there's also a huge transfer of work from uh, secondary care clinics, which are still happening remotely. Uh, and then they're asking for various things to happen in primary care physically, like um, I've seen this patient, please will you weigh them, measure them, do their BP, prescribe this drug, monitor it, etc. cetera. Um, so there's a lot of transfer of work, which is unfunded. And at the moment, uh, GPs are leaving the profession in droves. Um, and there's a, this is combined with some really quite nasty um, GP bashing that's coming that GPs should be seeing more patients face to face, 
um they these lazy people they've just not been working for the last year so you know could they please get off their asses and see some patients um and you know it, it's just horrible out there at the moment the workloads are huge um and we are being told in the on the same day actually we had a missive from nhs england saying you must open up your doors and let anyone come into reception who wants to. You must see any patient face-to-face -face who wants a face-to-face -face consultation. And on the same day, we got a letter saying, please will you speed up the vaccination campaign because there's this dangerous new variant around. I mean, do they want our waiting rooms full or don't they? Um, it, it, there really is a feeling that we cannot get it right. And actually at the moment, we just can't do it. And, and I'm I'm really worried that there is going to be a collapse, and mm. the 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 concept that your GP will do X Y Z anything you ask them is just going to have to go, uh, and and it grieves me terribly um, that something's got to give. Mm. Nisreen, we often ask you know, talk about burnout and moral injury and things in, in people at the, the front line of care. But I wonder about, you know, people working in public health. Is there a similar um, sense of, of burnout amongst your colleagues? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, people in public health have been working flat out. People, you know, the public health teams and councils and local councils, our colleagues at uh, Public Health England, and obviously, you know, us as a kind of academic public health um, professionals trying to um, make sense of everything that happened, keep up with the massive, you know, amount and the speed of um, how the science is, is changing and how that influences uh, public health interventions. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of burnout. And the, and the people in, our, in public health have been, again, been subjected to restructuring uh, in terms of, you know, the organisation. There is a massive issue of budget cuts, uh, you know, for public health. What's happening to that now that we know, now that ho hopefully everybody knows how public health is important, uh, you know, what's happening to funding and the restructuring. So as you know, Public Health England is being restructured, named into, you know, there's the National Institute of Health Protection and there's Office, Office of Health Promotion. And, and what does that mean for colleagues and, and the work, um, you know, that's being done? Again, you know, not independent as, you know, part of the governmental kind of structure. structure. Um, so lots and lots of burnout and um, people have been, um, I think there's a positive. I, th I think there is there is a positive in that uh, because before people just didn't know what public health is um, and didn't um, and and you know didn't know what important you know do we really need you know why is it public health is it the people who go around is it the environmental you know health officers people there's a lot of people outside public health who didn't know what public health is and I think that people have a better picture uh, of of what public health is and and what it can do so but yeah absolutely but burnout. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's understanding, um, understanding the roles. Public health is just one, not one role. You know, people, public health professionals place in different organizations may have different roles as well. Um, and what you want really is, is public health to be embedded in all of these uh, organizations. But as I said earlier, also to have an independent public health voice, um, you know, which brings not only the science, but the expertise people, you know, like the test and trace and, you know, the, the people with huge experience in terms of how to uh, manage and prevent outbreaks out there in public health, where all, all of that expertise wasn't really voiced uh, or had much influence in, in, in the pandemic. Mm. Um, and that needs to change as well. So, as you might have expected, that was a pretty gloomy look at what happened. But there has also been positive changes to come about from the pandemic, and the production of knowledge has been a key one. So we'll move on to the incredible science that's happened in the last 12 months. But first of all, here's an offer for our listeners in the UK. As a healthcare professional, keeping up with the latest evidence-based medicine is more important now than ever before with the COVID-19 pandemic. That's why BMJ Best Practice is free to all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales. 
With fast access to the latest clinical guidance anywhere, anytime, BMJ Best Practice will enable you to treat patients with confidence. As well as COVID-19 treatments, you can access over a thousand topics across 32 clinical specialities with step-by-step -step guidance on diagnosis, prognosis, treatment and prevention, all structured around the patient consultation. To create your free account, visit bmj.com slash ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. So, science has moved incredibly fast in the last year. A quick PubMed search that I did before this showed that uh, three times more scientific papers have been published on coronaviruses uh, in 2020 than the whole previous time back to 1970 before that. Now the science that we've done has been building our understanding of this novel virus from scratch and so that came with a huge amount of uncertainty that doctors, policymakers and the public had to deal with. Um, Matt, if we start with you, I think critical care was where a lot of this this was being played out in real time. Yeah, I think the first huge impact that that science had was in the rapid emergence of large platform clinical trials to help treat patients who are critically ill with COVID. Uh, and actually, you know, a lot of those originated and were coordinated from, from the UK. You know, the, re the recovery trial especially, also, some intensive care specific trials, REMAPCAP, uh, the ISRIC trial, uh, and others. And actually, in terms of preparedness, you know, one reason these had got up and running so quickly is because, unlike the governmental exercises where lessons perhaps weren't learned, there were governance frameworks, even ethics in place for pandemic research trials to get going very quickly. Uh, and they were quickly pivoted uh, towards COVID. And then, of course, the emergence of dexamethasone is a treatment which saves lives, saves lots of lives, is a really cheap treatment which is available globally all over the world. You know, was amazing, uh, and that's you know one thing that really gets me when the the misinformation around other treatments which are being withheld, which there's no shortage of if you look on social media, saying, oh, it's the pharmaceutical industry want to withhold data for these cheap trials because they want to sell their expensive drugs. You can't get a cheaper intervention than dexamethasone um, or a more impactful thing. And I think science and trials has long known that the route to change in medicine is too long. You know, it's 17 years on average to get a intervention which has been shown in a trial into clinical practice, probably longer to stop doing the things we know don't work. Uh, and COVID has certainly revolutionised that. Now, of course, there's, there's the flip side of that and trial data or clinical practice change by press release has some advantages and it's also got disadvantages. Um, and, you know, that will be where places like the BMJ and, and other major journals will be debating and trying to uh, lead the field. Uh, and then I guess just finally, you know, I had my first vaccine, I had the Pfizer vaccine, 37 weeks uh, after admitting the first COVID patient to the intensive care unit where I work. You know, that's less than a full term of pregnancy, you know, 37 weeks, that's incredible. So absolutely, science has been one of the successes of this. Not to say it's been all good, uh, not to say things couldn't be improved, but let's hope that many of those strategies used will go on to help uh, many more patients and, and healthcare systems in the future. Mm. And Partha, um, a lot of the, the discussion we've had is about the kind of strangeness of um, this virus and, and the effects it's having on, on things like, you know, people developing diabetes. Um, we're looking back, you know, how did that, that emerge and, and where are we now and what do we still kind of need to understand? Um, so one of the fundamental things which has happened over the last 12 months, I would say that there is a big thing whereby lots of things, have, good things have happened in the world of diabetes or chronic disease. For example, there's been suddenly been digital explosion in certain sectors of type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, which does help the self-management side of things. We've got some amazing data sets and there's some really, really interesting things to learn from. So, for example, when all this has happened, 
people said, oh my God, people can't see their GPs. There's no foot checks happening. Amputations are all going to go through the roof. The answer is the amputations have actually gone down, both major and minor. Now, there could be two or three things about it. What? One, people are not mobilizing. There's that. Two, the ones who are at a higher risk, some of them have died. Number three, it could come out in the rebound in the next few years. Or four, maybe just getting primary care to measure it every year is not the way. We don't know. There are lots of things. Maybe it's more about self-management. Maybe it's the fact that they're at home and being forced to look at their feet. That's got a bigger role rather than putting more work on primary care's door. So there's a lot of things that have come out. So for example, again, just to sort of give diabetic ketoacidosis, right? Gone up in type 2 diabetes. That's an area which we're focusing on. Why? That normally doesn't happen in type 2 diabetes. Type 1, the younger cohort, has dropped down. Why? No universities. No going out. Being at home with their parents. So there is a lot of learning. that, Of course, that doesn't mean we're going to say to kids, never go back to a party. But I think there's a fair amount of learning there as we go. It just challenges a few, a few things we have in our minds as well. So for me, I think as a, as a clinician, it's been quite fascinating, that whole narrative around how it changes. So it, it, it's, been, yeah, it's been great that, that from that respect, I would say. Nisreen, your, your experience with long COVID, how does that feel? Does that feel like a, a good new science story or is it a more complicated than that. I think there's been, uh, again, another big lesson in this pandemic is how morbidity has been neglected, really, and um, and, uh, partly understandable to start with because you want to deal with the acute, you know, disastrous effects of the pandemic. But I think we're obviously... um, more than a year on and I feel still morbidity is very much neglected in terms of the science um, um, not not only in terms of policy there's an argument obviously so for long COVID surveillance was completely missing so we didn't know what the size of the problem is for a very long time uh, but also in terms of the science that you know a lot of the you know it, it was mainly focused on the acute you know trying to deal with the acute effects um, and not treat or even prevent you know the 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 chronic effect which is long COVID so um so what you then get is um uh you know almost a year and a half on we still don't understand exactly what's going on with long COVID massive amount of people have it we really you know there's little that the science um is offering to be frank in terms of people on COVID there is much more interest now and and there are you know studies ongoing um so I think that's another lesson for the pandemic is it, we need we know from other you know from other uh, pandemics epidemics that there will be morbidity effects uh, and long term effects um and we need to be prepared for them we need to quantify them count them be prepared for them and gear the science to deal with them from the start but i want to also say something else about the science in general i mean i think not only about press releases and i suppose you know how science has been changing but also about, you know the exposure um, to science, you know, the public being exposed to science. So on all sorts, sorts of, you know, not only social media, but, you know, just the mainstream media. Um, and and that narrative of the science, <laughs> uh, that there is no such thing, is there? And 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 that would it, that would have been a good thing to explain to everybody. Um, yeah. And uh, so what happens is now you've got this dilemma where if there is disagreements between scientists, um, there's a lot of tension about um, about how transparent you are in terms of your, you know, you can be in your scientific opinion. There's a lot of people attacking, you know, even scientists, uh, you know, really attacking each other, saying, well, you shouldn't say that because that causes mistrust in this or in that or, you know, whether to do the vaccine or or with other things, uh, you know, to do the pandemic. And how do we deal with that? We really need to learn with that because it was a good thing that you know, scientists had a public voice um, in this pandemic. Uh, but what can we learn from all of these interactions? Mm. I think people, others wanting, desperately want to say something about this. <laughs> uh, I have not seen anything more distasteful than the personal attacks on people. I mean, these are, you know, I don't mind. It comes from trolls. It comes from people who are in the general public and they're one of the two followers. But to see really respected clinicians or people who are in proper jobs, people who are trainees coming out and naming people and the personal level of abuse. This is not about challenging data. You're absolutely right. People will always, always be in the right space to challenge it. And they should. We are all of a, you know, 
critical mindset we should challenge. That's our job. But the things that I've seen on a personal basis, you know, I've seen what Nisreen's got, I've seen what Trisha's got. You may not agree with them, but you cannot go into a space of personal abuse. And, you know, especially from a clinical background, I mean, there has to be some degree of regulation around this. Every other industry that you know of, is it is the most unsavory thing I've seen. Not the challenge. Challenge is absolutely right. And I would challenge industry and I would challenge Trish. Not a problem. But you could do it in a very, very normal way, just like you would do as clinicians. And I think that, to me, has been a really, really distasteful part of the last 12, 15. And then people do that and then they go, oh, I'm really upset. And I go, well, if you're upset, then go and don't go on social media then. Why are you putting it out there? And then you have to retract it. That makes you look even more silly. You know, it's mm. that that's the narrative I've not understood at all. And that does add confusion as well when it becomes personal. And I wonder, uh, Helen, I always think of GPs as being, you know, the place where people come and ask about, uh, the public comes to ask about um, science questions of, of the medical profession. So how's that been? Yeah, it's really interesting. Right at the beginning of the vaccine campaign, um, I got on board a couple of very erudite, retired medical professionals in our area and kind of like they wanted to do something to help. And I said, OK, well, if people want to ask some questions about the vaccine and have lots of questions and we actually don't have time to answer everybody's questions, how, how would it be if we refer people to you? And they can, you know, and you can have a longer discussion about the vaccines that we didn't use them. We didn't need to, because actually we have a population who were just so relieved to have this vaccine that actually on the ground, people who didn't want to engage or didn't want to have the vaccine were remarkably few. And they certainly didn't want to have a, a long and detailed discussion of the evidence. My connection with the science, because I'm really much, very much a practitioner rather than a scientist, was one, the excitement of actually being in a vaccine mm. trial. Um, and then the, just the joy of those first vaccine clinics. It's pulled a little bit, but um, actually it's still really lovely doing vaccine clinics and watching this amazing science that's gone from, you know, as, as Matt was saying, in, the, in, the, in such a short time, gone from the first sequencing to an effective vaccine and that's been a joy i suppose i have one or two worries going forward um and that's because some of the the advances that have been made may partly have been because a kind of open season on data that's happened um during the pandemic there's some particular regulations um control of patient information uh regulations from 2002 which um, basically say in a pandemic um, information could be taken about patients to control the spread of that infection um, and that's fine um, without all necessarily all the niceties that are usually observed about ensuring um, patient that patients can't be identified okay and obviously if you're thinking about trace and trace and you know who's got the infection and where they get that's clearly sensible what's happening imminently is efforts to well there have been efforts even before that to try and put use of particularly gp data into a a more structured format because there's loads of different research bodies and agreements between individual practices and research organizations um that are not terribly safe in terms of um, safeguarding patient confidentiality and patient data. Um, and so a great big new thing is happening called the general practice data for planning and research, I think. Um, and they're going to take lots of NHS digital, they're going to take basically pretty much all GP data and put it into a big data store where researchers can, can use it. Um, and this will enable some of the very fast and flexible research that happened in the pandemic to continue on all sorts of other things. But there are people who have significant worries about uh, data security, even though it's being handled by NHS Digital, um, which is to do with some of the other players involved. Um, and uh, it's all happening very soon. 
uh, it's all a bit of a, uh, a difficult space at the moment. Um, I agree with Helen. I mean, data security is a very legitimate concern um, that many people have and shouldn't be dismissed. And I think when we, it's important to know when we're talking about hesitancy of, uh, you know, testing or hesitancy, you know, vaccine hesitancy, I think is, um, we shouldn't be just saying, well, that could be just be fixed by kind of promotion campaigns and, you know, explaining this, this things to people. People have legitimate concerns about things and they need to be addressed uh, in a transparent way. So that includes data. But the other thing that includes is um, um, if, if there is distrust, um, the origin of it could be from, um, you know, from from what happened, you know, from inequalities, you know, in terms of policy and practice and, you know, discriminatory policies that happened in the past, particularly for groups like people from ethnic minorities. And I'm just talking about particularly the theme of the vaccine hesitancy. I see a lot of, a, um, you know, easy fixes, you know, saying, well, you, you just you have to talk to them and have some kind of promotional campaign and, you know, explain things for them. And it's all the disinformation. Yes, disinformation is a big problem, but there are legitimate concerns that people have and they need to be addressed. I just wanted uh, to say that because this this is a very common theme at the moment in terms of, you know, the hesitancy bit, which uh, the word actually I don't even like, the hesitancy itself. <laughs> that's, mm. that's it. That was a whistle-stop tour through the the last year and obviously we couldn't touch on everything in Nazreen, the the points you bring up there were were huge problems that we um we're still wrestling with. The pandemic uh, isn't over here. Um, though vaccination is is rolling out, we're, we've we've got worries about um, variants and and things like that. Um, we're not going to be doing another one of these um, for a little while. But uh, I wonder the last thing is maybe. What will each of you be keeping your eye on? What, um, you know, what do you think it's important to to pay attention to uh, in the next few months, the rest of of twenty twenty one? Helen, should we start with you? I would like to keep an eye on the rest of the world and Britain's place within the rest of the world in terms of. Um, our contribution to helping the worldwide pandemic come to an end because just at the moment there's a kind of slightly feeling of well we're doing fine because we've got the vaccine um, and we've done really well with our rollout but we're not fine if the virus continues all over the rest of the world generating new mutants and the rest of the world isn't fine either and that really really matters so i think i'm going to be trying to lift my head and look out at what's happening elsewhere and whether we as a country are doing our utmost to help in other parts of the world uh right so from my point of view i think we are at a cusp of where we are, right, of the next phase. And we are all sort of swinging between, is there another wave coming or is the vaccines good enough? Uh, the only thing I would probably keep an eye on is not quite related to the pandemic, but probably where GP care is heading. Because I genuinely believe we are at a very, very different moment compared to what normally is. This is not usual you know, you could say in inverted commas, usual GP anger. This is not, this is very different. And I'm saying this from local people who have, you know, I've known as SHOs for years. This is very different. And if people who are in policy roles are not quite getting it, we might be heading ourselves into big trouble. And I'll finish with this bit. So I do a national role, right, for diabetes. I've said this many, many times over. My plan to do any catch-up hinges on GPs. And yes, I know there are lots of other people who will do that, the practice nurses and pharmacists and everybody, but without GPs, we are dead in the water. And we really, really need to be careful in the next few months where we go with this. Matt? Yeah, I echo all of the things said. So to talk about three slightly different things, I guess, in terms of COVID or pandemics per se, 
I guess I'm particularly interested in a one medicine approach and how our interaction with non-human animals, for example, may be impacted by this uh, in the future. And that's not just for COVID, that's for the other pandemics which are around the corner, which may have got a 30% mortality rate rather than low one than we have now. Uh, In terms of science and research, I think platform adaptive trial designs are here to stay with Bayesian statistics. uh, And it'll be fascinating to see how medicine and us as doctors and healthcare professionals can interpret those complex trial designs because that will be a huge challenge and i think clinically the walls of intensive care have never been so thin as they are now and that's a good thing you know working with respiratory colleagues in niv cpap units high flow outside of critical care working with eye infectious diseases far more working with acute medicine and, and working with other subspecialties really so those would be the three takeaways for me to watch over the next few years Mm. and the three gosh yeah big question what will i be (laughs) i'll I'll first be keeping an eye on my three colleagues here matt martha and ellen because i've learned so much from them um so uh hopefully i can still continue to learn from them and um um well uh, i've i've focused a lot on long COVID over the last year or so, I'll continue to do so. There's just so much work to be done there, particularly from the angle of inequalities and stigma um, in long COVID, because I just can see this um, as a massive, massive problem, um, you know, in, in, in the future. I will continue to a focus on the public health um, effect of the pandemic. No, so that's not just long COVID, you know, the non kind of um, not caused directly by the infection, uh, but really the massive inequalities generated uh, by the pandemic in all sorts of ways. Um, and public health communication is really key. I mean, uh, uh, to me, to try and really make sense of how the language we use, the the way things are communicated, um, you know, shapes, you know, the lives and health of people um, is 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 massive. There's just so so much really for me to to focus on. Uh, so yeah, keeping an eye on you know trying to manage all of that and juggle it as well. But it's just it's just been such a pleasure to to do this. Uh, wonderful. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, BMJ. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for for joining us. So that brings us to the end of this episode and to this run of the Second Wave podcast. As I said, we're hoping to hear from clinicians who are still in the midst of the pandemic, and we'll be bringing you that on this podcast feed soon. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from to make sure those episodes are delivered directly to your phone. We'll be back soon with more talk evidence, well-being and big interviews. But until then, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from the Second Wave team. Bye. 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 Bye.